Our lessons from the Hebrew scriptures give us an old story, a very old story. And we know it comes from the dark reaches of our past because it is so strange. The people of Israel are in the midst of their wilderness wanderings, and they are not happy. Their journey is marked by moaning and groaning. The King James Version of the Bible and the rector would call it murmuring. They complained about the bitter water of Merah. The Lord told Moses how to sweeten it. They complained about the lack of food. The Lord gave them manna. They complained that they were thirsty. Moses struck the rock at God's command and water gushed forth. They got tired of the manna and wanted to eat meat. The Lord sent them quails. The people of Israel kept looking back at their time of slavery through rose-colored glasses. They tired of eating that manna every day, same old manna, and longed for the leeks, the onions, and the garlic of Egypt. I even wore my garlic earrings in honor of the Israelites. So they remembered the foods of Egypt and longed for them forgetting that they had been slaves in Egypt and were now free people. Grumbling as they go, they come upon an infestation of poisonous snakes. Some people are bitten and they die. The grumblers immediately change their tune and repent, thinking it was their complaining that caused the attack of the poisonous snakes. So Moses makes a bronze serpent and puts it on the pole, and all who look at it recover from snake bite. Now it would seem that he's making a graven image, an idol, forbidden by those commandments we just heard about last week. In primitive cultures, it was not uncommon for the image of a dangerous animal to be used as an amulet. So Yahweh orders Moses to take the serpent a dangerous, wild creature of the wilderness, and transform it into a stable, reliable, cultic object. It is important to note that the people of Israel were only to look at the serpent. They were not to worship it. And in that way, it functioned not as an idol, but as a gift from God. Once Moses makes it possible for them to gaze fully upon what they are afraid of, they gain access to its healing power. We heard this lesson from the Hebrew scripture because Jesus mentions it in today's gospel lesson. Nicodemus has come to Jesus under cover of darkness. He seeks out Jesus in the hope that all his questions will be answered. But this is the gospel of John. And as usual in the gospel of John, what he seems to get are more questions. In the course of his discussion with Nicodemus, Jesus refers to himself as the healing serpent. We know he will be raised up by an obscene act of crucifixion, yet he will give healing to those who look upon him. Now, we refer to Jesus by many images, the good shepherd, the light of the world, the lamb of God, but no one goes around referring to Jesus as the serpent on the pole. 
Our concepts of snakes and serpents is very different from that of ancient people, and we don't see the snake as a sign of healing despite the symbol used by doctors. When we think in religious terms, we remember how Satan took the form of a serpent to tempt humans. Yet the image of the serpent used here and in the book of Numbers has much to commend it because it gives us lots to think about. So in preparation for this Sunday, I came across the website for the Franciscan Shrine on Mount Nebo, also known as Pisgah, the traditional place of Moses' death. And if you look at your announcement sheet, we have, we have visual aids this morning. The church itself dates, dates from about the second to fourth centuries, and the Franciscan friars have restored the building and commissioned decorative metalwork both inside and out, including the serpentine cross by Italian artist Giovanni Fantoni on the exterior of the building. This cross is symbolic of the bronze serpent of Moses and the cross on which Jesus was crucified. So maybe this story isn't quite as strange as we originally thought. But what's the take-home message for us from these remarkable readings? In the context of Lent, when we are invited to make space in our lives to think about the deep things of life, these lessons invite us to think about what we are most afraid of. We live in a fearful time full of uncertainties. And I think those times are made more stressful because with few exceptions, we are unable to put a face on our fears. There is also the sense in us that we have met the enemy and he is us, or at least people very much like us. Remember the seven deadly sins? Lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and pride. Quite a few of those seem to figure in our situation. What are we most afraid of besides snakes? What does that kind of fear do to us both as persons and as a people? How does God respond to our fear both in the wilderness and at the foot of the cross. Both of these readings remind us that God is the source of healing for us, for humanity, for all creation. Through Christ, God offers us life and light. God takes on the darkness, the condemnation, and the evil in this world by redeeming creation. And yet, like the people of Israel, we are impatient on the way. We grumble, we complain, we murmur. We forget that to come to the light requires some work and an active way of life. To live as God intends requires continual pilgrimage. So these lessons serve as a reminder that God's ways are not our ways, but that even in seemingly hopeless situations, God can be at work bringing health, and wholeness, even if it isn't the health and wholeness we expect. They also serve as a reminder for us to pay attention, to keep looking for the elusive signs of God's work in the world around us, to keep listening for hints of God's spirit and the noise that surrounds us, 
and to keep searching for God's life, even in the places where we least expect to find it. Amen.